interestingly, I guess tomorrow's Easter Sunday for Catholics and Protestants. And the Jews, of course, will keep the Passover a day later than us since they've done the 15th all the way back instead of the 14th. But it'll be here before you know it. <clears throat> Getting into uh, sermon for today, I went to John, I guess, 2 and 3 last week and uh, began with the marriage in Cana of Galilee where Christ turned water into wine. And we saw some of the symbolism there as to why that was important uh, and why he would make wine uh, as his first miracle. And uh, I commented about how wine and water can be good and new doctrine, and he was bringing new doctrine, uh, which was better than anything they had ever heard. But for some reason, I guess my mind short-circuited, and I, I didn't mention the biggest symbolism that's here. Uh, actually, by far the biggest symbolism. Uh, why did he come to this earth? The man might be saved from his sins. And what does wine represent in its biggest fulfillment? The blood of Christ. So when he made 120 gallons more or less of wine, the first miracle was showing in a physical way what he was coming to the earth and what his ministry was all, all about, and that is his blood be shed for all mankind. He made a lot of wine there. I don't know how many people were at the wedding feast, but they'd already been drinking for quite some time, and they had gotten to the point they didn't know good wine from bad wine. So they'd had quite a bit. Uh, well, this earth, at the time Christ came, almost 4,000 years after it was created, or let's see, I guess I'm saying, that, yeah, 4,000 years after it was created, and man put here anyway. Uh, there had been a lot of teaching and a lot of bad teaching, and people were drunk on various things. I think I mentioned the wine of a fornication regarding Babylon and this nation today. So they had been inviting of the wrong thing that wasn't going to save them, false religions, Baal worship, Satan worship, you name it. So he brought them the best that had ever been. The only thing good that had ever occurred is what he brought. And I think it is very fitting, and the way God would do it, to have him turn water into wine, which represented ultimately his blood three and a half years later that was shed for all mankind. And he made enough wine to show that there was Plenty for everyone. He didn't make a, a gallon or two. He made a lot. And probably there was some left over. Just as there are several different uh, resurrections in the plan of salvation, and Christ is going to make sure that there is enough of his blood, a big enough sacrifice for all mankind who will repent and accept him. So... I don't think there should be any real mystery as to why his first miracle was wine. We'll see a little bit later on uh, a miracle of loaves, of bread. And, of course, his body represents bread at the Passover, and his blood represented wine. So those were among the very first of his miracles. Uh, he had a healing, I think, in between, as we'll see. But uh, what is his... What is the wine? What is his blood? It's for spiritual healing. And why was his body broken and beaten? Well, for physical healing. So he shows in there a miracle of his blood. He shows a miracle of healing. And then he shows his bread, his body, given for the forgiveness of physical sin and physical healing. So let's go into chapter 4 now. Uh, where we where we left off. When therefore the eternal knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made, or Emmanuel I should say, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Emmanuel himself baptized not, but his disciples. I think that's an important distinction that was done under his authority with his disciples who were there with him. But uh, for him to have baptized with his own hands, 
would have given people an opportunity at self-righteousness, vanity, ego, and pride uh, that they were baptized of Christ himself. It reminds me of the uh, Merovingian doctrine that people have carried really all through the century since Christ was here. And that is that Christ did marry and did have lots of children, and uh, people claim that they are in the lineage directly of Christ, that they are the sons of God, <laughs> or sons of Christ. Uh, there are different groups, and that, that doctrine is called Merovingian, that they are directly blood-related to Christ. So it becomes a point of vanity and of ego and of self-righteousness to think that they're better than, or better stock or better people or better breeding or anything beyond what anybody else is. So he didn't even baptize, and I think it makes sense that he also didn't marry and have children uh, in the short life that he would live on this earth and the confusion and frustration and self-righteousness that that would have all caused. Anyway, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. So on the way to Galilee, he went through a part of the northern tribes. You remember the division there. You had the Jews, uh, Levites, and Benjamites in one tribe, and they'd separated. Uh, and the Samaritans, or the Samaria, were the ten northern tribes. So he had to go through part of that to get to uh, Galilee. Then he comes into a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. This was a well that Jacob himself had dug. Uh, they didn't have big well drilling rigs in those days. They dug wells by hand. Uh, Emmanuel, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So he'd been traveling, grew hot, grew tired, and uh, sat there on the well to rest a bit. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. Emmanuel said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy food. So he was waiting there at the well while they went into town to bring food. Then said the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew... Uh, ask, drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there were two, the, Israel was separated. You know, the, the Actually 13 tribes, since they, they counted both Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, so they had separated, had different rulers, different territory, and didn't get along with each other. So she was wondering why he would ask a favor of her. You know, we're, we're not the same people. Well, literally, physically, they were as brothers, but on a spiritual or a governmental and civic level, they were not at that time. Still aren't, really. Anyway, Emmanuel answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that you would have uh, give, who said to you, give me a drink, you would ask of him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a very interesting thing that he did here. Uh, you know, the gospel was to go to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And Christ preached and taught primarily among the Jews, as did the disciples afterward, or the apostles. But then uh, Paul was instructed to go to the Gentiles. But even in Christ's ministry, before that ever occurred, he sometimes dealt with those, in this case, not a Gentile, but at least not a Jew, uh, the rest of Israel. It had not been opened up to. But he was saying all Israel can be involved. It isn't just the Jews. And he'll make some points uh, down here as we go along about that situation. The woman said to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where have you that I uh, have you that living water? What are you talking about? Uh, the well's here. It's deep. You don't have a bucket. How are you going to give me living water? Well, he obviously was speaking of something 
but she didn't understand. She was thinking simply and only physically there at the well, and he was speaking in spiritual terms. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? I think sometimes we think of Samaritans as being Gentiles, but that wasn't actually the case. Uh, Northern tribes were known as Samaria, and she obviously related to Jacob as in her lineage as father who had done that very well. Emmanuel answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water of which I speak, or no, the physical water there, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. So he says, I've come to offer something greater than this physical water that Jacob provided. There's something better. There's something that will please you and take away your thirst forevermore. In fact, if we fulfill the purpose of salvation that he was talking about, uh, when we have eternal life, we would never want or never need physical water ever again. Our life will not depend upon food and water, physically speaking. But that's all she had knowledge of. So he's giving her some incredible insight here that she didn't understand. And she didn't know who he was. <laughs> you, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? Well, he said, I'm the one. You know, there were times when Christ would pretty much put people off and not let them know who he was. Or he'd say, well, you said it, I didn't. Or, or kind of back off from the idea of who he was. And sometimes he would even blend into the crowd and disappear so that they wouldn't know who he was. But there were times when he was very straightforward and very blunt about it, uh, as in with this woman of Samaria. And we'll see here that he had a reason for doing this with her because this story was going to spread, and he wanted the northern tribes to know that he was there so that they would have opportunity if they so sought it. So he made this a very direct, very blunt, very straightforward uh, admission as to who he was. Uh, she says in verse 15, uh, or the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. She said, this sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I have to come down here every day and draw this water out of that well on a rope and a bucket probably. And then I have to carry it lightly on her head all the way home. And she says, this gets tiresome. This gets old. Uh, I, I want some of that water you're talking about so I don't ever get thirsty again. Emmanuel said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, he's baiting her. Uh, he knew her situation. There are some who think that this may have been uh, Helen, Simon's wife. That's that speculation. I don't know that. Uh, but at least Christ knew her story. Call your husband. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Emmanuel said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband, and that you say truly. So apparently she had been married five times and was just shacking up at this point, and she even admitted herself that the guy she was living with was not her husband. And he says, no, you've had five husbands, and this one's not. Now, according to the Old Testament, she may not have ever lived in adultery until this last man. If you understand Deuteronomy 24, she may have been put away four times in the past. No, five times, five husbands, by her husband who found some something about her he didn't like, as Deuteronomy 24 says. So you could put away your wife for any cause at that time, and legally, under the law of Moses. But she hadn't married this last one. You know, why go through that again after five? I guess. <laughs> but anyway, uh, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
In other words, how did you know my background, my history? I just met you here. I've never seen you before. And you know my marriages and my history and my life and what I'm doing right now. You must have some incredible insight. Of course he did. Um, but uh, he was using her for a particular purpose here. Because our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You know, my Jacob was here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Uh, Emmanuel said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he says, you're a Samaritan, you're of the northern tribes, and salvation is coming through the Jews. Of course, he was of the tribe of Judah, and he was the only way and the only door to salvation. So he says, you don't know what you're worshiping, because the true God is working through me, he's talking about, who is a Jew, and I'm the only way to salvation. So you don't know what you're worshiping. Uh, you, you can't be worshiping the Father in heaven because he sent me and I'm of him. <laughs> so whatever else it is, if it doesn't come through the line of Judah, through him, then you're worshiping something else. And it turns out mankind since Adam and Eve essentially have worshiped Satan. And they don't even know it. Uh, they think they're worshiping the true God in many respects and many times. And it's not true at all because they don't keep the laws of God and the word of God. And therefore, um, they aren't worshiping God. God says, his servant you are to whom you obey. So if they don't obey the law, they don't obey the testimony of Christ, these words, live by every word of God, the Bible, they're not doing that. They're not worshiping God because they're not obeying God. So they can give him lip service, but it doesn't mean a thing. There are many, many millions of people right now on this earth today. Some are gathering Easter eggs, at the, or did this morning, and a whole bunch more will gather them tomorrow morning. And they're not worshiping God. They think they are. They think when they have Easter sunrise service in the morning, that Christ will be there and and, and these little rabbits laid all these different colored eggs. No, God's not in it. I'm sorry. She worshipped. She knew not what. Well, the Pharisees were in the same boat. They were of Judah. And they thought they were worshipping the Father in heaven, right? He told them, you worship, you know not what. You're snakes and liars and a whole bunch of other things he called them. But the hour comes and now is, not only is it coming, but it now is, because he was there and he was beginning his ministry. When the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now the Spirit of God had not been brought up to this point as a begettle. Now there were some in the Old Testament, a few, who had the Spirit of God and who I did understand spiritual things, at least to some degree. You read the Psalms, and you will understand that, that uh, David certainly understood spiritual things. So did Moses, so did Abraham, and a few others that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. But the Holy Spirit had not been given until Christ came. Actually, until he left, and he came back on the day of Pentecost. But he, the Spirit was with him, and it settled on him as a dove when he was baptized. So he certainly was filled with the Spirit of God and began to offer it. Uh, his, even his disciples who heard these spiritual things did not really understand them until the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2. He says, when you're converted, then you'll understand. He told Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. If Peter didn't understand what or how to do, he didn't really grasp fully the spiritual things until the Spirit of God combined with his mind, and that had not been offered before, not in the same way. 
to some degree to the patriarchs, but not to the general populace by any means. So he said, the time is, beginning with his life on this earth and his ministry in particular, that they'll begin to worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is actively looking for people who are willing to worship him. And out of six and a half, going on seven billion people on earth today, there are probably not more than 20 or 30,000 at this point who are truly seeking to worship God. I didn't mean that as a, a particular number, but uh, the biggest number of people that ever attended the Feast of Tabernacles in this age was about 150,000. And there were a lot of children and unconverted mates and all kinds of people there that were not really uh, members and didn't understand. A lot of prospective members who weren't baptized and weren't begotten yet. So uh, how many really converted people were there even at the heyday of Worldwide Church of God? Uh, 50, 60, 70,000, maybe, 80, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a great number. Uh, I mean, a third of all people in the church were children. <laughs> so, uh, that cuts her down pretty quick right there. I, I counted it up several times over the years in congregations that I pastored uh, and counted the number of adults attending and the number of children. And it generally worked out at about a third. Well, that was under normal times. Today, as I look around, uh, I think the average age here is about 70, 75. <laughs> well, maybe a couple of people bring it down a little, but uh, I don't see many children. Well, God said, this is a prophecy too, you know. We've gone over it many times that there'd be old men, probably a few old women, but speaking specifically of old men who would be around to remember the former temple and the latter temple. So it's an aging church. And that fits prophecy perfectly. But in times past, is what I'm saying, when, when we were under normal circumstances, uh, if there were 150,000 at the feast worldwide, there were about 100,000 adults. And a lot of them weren't even converted. So how many were there who were truly converted? So the Father seeks such to worship him. I don't know, but I suspect that the end-time church was a lot greater, more people called than there were even in the days of the apostles. Uh, they did have congregations scattered here and there and everywhere, but uh, in most cases you read in the Bible they were meeting in someone's house. They didn't have great big halls full of people like we did at one time, uh, so the churches were not very big. So it was it was pretty well limited even then, even though it does say there, right after Acts 2, that 3,000 and 5,000 were converted and baptized in a day and so on. That didn't happen for very long. And then people began falling away and so on. So I suspect more were called. Now, how many will be chosen out of the end time and out of other eras, I do not know. But from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he says God is looking for those who will worship him. And that is a very rare instance since Adam and Eve walked the earth that people seek to worship God and are willing to do what God says. Now, there are a lot of people on earth today in the so-called Christian world who will accept Christ's name and say we, we're Christians, but they won't do what he said. So he's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's a pretty limited bunch of people. That's what he says next. He's seeking such that they'll worship in spirit and in truth. And he says then in verse 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we have to have God's spirit the right spirit and attitude, his spirit combined with the spirit in man, with our intelligence, 
produces understanding of the spiritual world and of God that someone without that cannot understand. They cannot. Even if they want to, they cannot without God's spirit there. And is doctrine important? We find today that since Worldwide Church of God broke up, there are quite a few people with varying doctrines that changes here, changes there, changes somewhere else. And people may be seeking truth. Most have not, really. They've just gone on with what they always believed, and they haven't sought to grow in grace and knowledge of God and his plan and of true doctrine. And we are we're told to grow. Are we, were we told to grow until Herbert Armstrong died and then we knew everything and don't grow anymore? Since he was not the Elijah to come, he did not restore all things, and therefore a lot of things remain to be restored. It has to be done, because God says you have to worship in spirit and in truth. Therefore, true doctrine becomes very, very important. True understanding, true belief true grasp of what you should be doing. Is the calendar important? People say, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference anyway as long as we keep the feast. Well, is God precise? Does it make any difference which day you keep as a Sabbath as long as you keep one? No, he specifically says the seventh day. He's very precise about it. And he's very precise about other things as well. So the calendar becomes very, very important. God wants things done on time and in order, not in confusion. So we must have the Spirit of God, and we must also seek truth and accept truth and follow truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah comes. She, she knew Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah coming. There are many, many passages in the Old Testament about Christ coming. In fact, Christ somewhere along here says even that Moses wrote of him, not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but Moses wrote things about Christ and how he was to come. So she says, I know Messiah comes, which is called Christ, or Messiah. When he has come, he will tell us all things. You, sir, are not it, <laughs> she said. She thought maybe he was a prophet because he understood her background. But she wasn't ready to accept who he really was. Maybe a prophet, but not that prophet spoken of in the Old Testament. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Emmanuel said to her, I that speak to you am he. Now, how do you get more direct than that? I'm the one. You just ran into him. You've been looking for the Messiah maybe all your life, and all of your family and your relatives have. Will you recognize him when you see him? we got the whole Christian world right now anticipating Christ is going to come. Are they going to recognize him? No. They will recognize the Antichrist as Christ. I don't know what they're going to do. Will they have a big hologram of some kind with, that shows a being coming down out of the heavens? Will Christ or will uh, Satan himself manifest himself as an angel of light uh, and come to the earth as a human being? Maybe not himself, but he could transfer that. You know, they can they can put anything on a television right now that is absolutely untrue, and it looks like the real thing. They do now have the technology. Uh, there was a movie some years back about a, a war that they were putting on the news every day. I don't remember the name of the movie. I never did see it. But Wag the Dog. Oh, Wag the Dog. Yeah, okay. That, yeah, that was it. Where they would broadcast on the TV news every day the things that had happened in that war. And none of it was happening. It was all done through technology. Uh, and they are far, far 
further ahead now with that kind of technology than they were when that movie was made. I don't remember when it was. It's been some time. They could literally, on your evening news on TV, present a Christ coming down out of the heavens or a war or anything else that they want to depict. And it would look real to you. I mean, you can't believe anything you see on the Internet anymore because they can Photoshop things to make them look like, I mean, they make it look real. They can put this head on that body, and you can't tell the difference. So people say, I've always said, seeing is believing. <laughs> not anymore, it's not. You find your new expression. Seeing is not believing necessarily because they have all kinds of chicanery and ways to lie to us. But he just told her straight out, uh, I am the one. Did she recognize immediately who he was? No. And the world isn't either. They'll accept the Antichrist. The whole Christian world will accept the Antichrist. And he says it's going to be so real that even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. It is going to be stupendous. And the whole Christian world will accept it. And then when he does come in glory, they will all reject him and turn against him. They'll accept the Antichrist wholeheartedly and accept the true Christ or be by the whole the new Christ, the true Christ wholeheartedly. Satan is pretty powerful. He has his devices and his ways. So you you say, well, why why couldn't this woman recognize? Well, they won't on this day either. So I'm the one. Verse 27. Now and upon this came his disciples on this conversation and marveled that he talked with the woman. Jews and and uh, Israelites didn't talk to each other. Yet no man said, what seek you, or why talk you with her? Now, they'd already seen enough from him that they weren't going to question him. They just kept their mouths shut. The woman then left her water pot. She didn't even take her water with her. She She got out of there. She was kind of excited, kind of... Her experience had been something she had never gone through before. And went her way into the city and said to the men, she looked up the men, I, I got a story to tell you. Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. <laughs> Have you ever run into anybody to just look at you and tell you everything you'd ever done? No, you haven't, I haven't. And if I did, I'd rebuke him in Christ's name. And, and because I know that that was a demonic influence, because some of those things that teeth and mutter and so on, and demons can know a lot of things. But they better come with the right spirit and attitude, otherwise uh, I, I'll have nothing to do with it. Well, this, this woman had some confusion, but she recognized there was something important there. I, I, if a spirit... Being appeared to me, don't get me wrong, I'm not automatically going to assume it's a demon. Uh, that's been the experience of most people. But in the past, when an angel of God would appear, people fell on their face. When a demon appeared, they fell on their back, fell over backward. So just the human reaction to the type of spirit it is can often tell you the truth. But Satan is going to come as a wolf in sheep's clothing and as Antichrist with him, and they won't fall over backwards. Uh, they will accept it. Now, we need to know the truth, and we need to be sure we are filled with the Spirit of God that we not be deceived. Anyway, uh, she said, come see a man. Is not this the Christ? She was beginning to realize maybe what he said was true. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Interesting, isn't it, that he didn't go to the leaders of the Samaritan nation, to the king of Israel. He didn't approach those people. He approached a woman who was way down on the totem pole of human existence. 
Uh, even in that day, there weren't too many people who had been married five times and were shacking up. Uh, so she would not have been in great reputation, let's say, among people. So he he took someone of the lowliest caste, if you might say it that way, or the lowliest of, of the peoples, and gave this truth to her. Now, he's told us in 1 Corinthians one twenty six he works through the weak in the base. So he didn't go to the leaders of the nation. He went to this woman, and then she went to the men of the city. And she said, is not this the Christ? Now, what would their level of belief be? <laughs> Coming from this woman of ill repute. But she must have been pretty adamant about it. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Said, well, guess we better go talk to this guy. Uh, in the meanwhile, his disciples asked him, saying, Master, eat. They brought food from the city. But he said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He said, I've started a process here with this woman that uh, has to be seen through for godly purposes. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has any man brought him something to eat? Normally when we bring food, he eats with us. Now we brought food, and he said, No, I have meat to eat. So, you know, we brought you Chinese. What are you having, pizza? What have you had to eat? And Daniel said to them, My meat is to, to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So his real food, I mean, he ate physically throughout his tenure on the earth. But his real work was, his real food was doing what God had for him to do. And that should be our goal and our purpose as well. What did Christ tell us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? To seek treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. That our real food, our real wealth, our real treasure is the spiritual. And I think that's driven home by this very story right here. That the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth, but he doesn't find very many. Mankind as a whole is, spends nearly all his time and energy trying to seek physical, material gratification and physical food and dress and clothes and cars and you name it. Uh, that's what people are after. But he says, no, your goal ought to be spiritual. Treasure in heaven. So he's making that distinction right here even to his disciples, you know, you, the physical food you bought, brought, that's okay, but I'm here for something more important than that. Say, say not you, there are yet four months and then comes harvest. Well, you're thinking physically. How, how do we eat until harvest time comes? He says, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. There were people there. There were human beings there. He was coming, and for the first time, opportunity of salvation was going to be opened up to people. So he says, it's ready to harvest. Within three and a half years of this time, or about that amount of time, uh, the Holy Spousum would be converted. So he wasn't just kidding. <laughs> you know, the fields were there. The people were there. They were already alive. They were walking around. They were grown up. Uh, they would be there when the Holy Spirit came and that power of God began to be opened up to the populace at large. He that reaps reaps wages and gathers fruit to life eternal, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. Now Christ is sowing spiritual things. And he sent us out to reap. We're here to set an example to the world, to guide their thinking, to tell them what's the wrong God is doing so that he that sows and he that is involved in the reaping can rejoice together. And won't we rejoice when 144,000 come together with the groom and have a wedding supper? Then though he who first sowed and he who helped reap of course, Christ is the biggest reaper, but we help him. And that's what he's saying here to these men. The harvest is there. You're going to do some reaping. You've got to go out and counsel and baptize and, and lead and guide and teach. 
And herein is that saying true, one sows and another reaps. He was doing the major sowing right there and would continue to do that. Uh, no man can come except the spirit of the Father God, we'll see in a couple of chapters. So he had to sow uh, the seed in our minds, and then he sent those to come along and help with the the farming process and the reaping at the end. I sent you to reap that whereupon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you were entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. That must have been quite remarkable and shocking to them that uh, he had been able to tell her that. And they must have also been thinking, I wonder if he knows about me. <laughs> if he could tell her life, he could probably tell our life. We better, we better uh, stand back here a little bit and be careful. And what he told the disciples here, he says, other men labored and you were entered into their labor. Who had labored before? The prophets of old had told Israel what was coming. And uh, even the John, ba John the Baptist had come and labored very hard to proclaim that Christ was coming. And then he had labored for 30 years and not sinning and seeking righteousness, which he accomplished. And then he presented a harvest to them, didn't he? When they gathered for Pentecost, they, they were just there. And suddenly the Holy Spirit came in power, and men came running from all over the city and believed and were converted and baptized, some of them that very day. So they hadn't done anything. All they'd done is follow him around, and he presented a harvest to them. Anyway, uh, verse 40, So when the Samaritans were come to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. So they said, stay, we want to hear more. So he did stay two days, and many more believed because of his own word. So some believed the woman, and then he talked and spoke for two days, and some believed of his own word. So these were not Jews. These were of the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, Samaritans. And said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, that's pretty remarkable that he, could, he would come, and nobody knew him. He sat at the well, and then he began to teach, and it doesn't specify what he had to say here, but I would not be at all surprised that he went into the history of Israel and, and uh, the past and Moses and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and everything that had transpired in the past and probably related some of the uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about himself and uh, whatever testimony he gave must have been quite remarkable. Because now they said, we do believe this is the Christ. And he's a Jew. <laughs> and they despise Jews. He may have explained his lineage. He probably explained why there was a rift between uh, Samaria and Judah. And why they weren't getting along. And uh, how the scripture specified that Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. Well, how could they deny that? Because they did believe in the Old Testament Scriptures. So I suspect that he he gave them a pretty good idea of what had gone on. Uh, so he departed and went to Galilee. In verse 44 it says, For Emmanuel himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he was come to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For well, they also went to the feast. So Emmanuel came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Emmanuel had come out of Judea to Galilee, he went to him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Emmanuel said to him, 
Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. People like signs and wonders. It makes it easier to believe, does it not? The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down, lest my child die. And Emmanuel said to him, Go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Emmanuel spoke to him, and he went his way. So he went there wanting Christ to come down and raise him up in person. Uh, but Christ said, no, he's, he's, he's being healed. He'll live. Not a problem. Go on. But the man believed him. How hard is it for you and I to believe him, even with what we know? When we ask God to heal us, what level of anticipation do we have? What level of trust and faith do we have? Are we hoping against hope? Is it like somebody with cancer goes and they tell them, well, if you take this chemo, you'll be healed. And you don't know whether you really believe them or not because you've seen a lot of people that have taken chemo that have died. So you say, well, I hope it'll work. I hope it'll work. Well, when we go to God, what level of hope and trust and belief do we have and conviction that it will work, that he will heal us? Now, he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now, this man had faith. He actually believed what Christ told him, and he went his way. He didn't argue and say, well, you know, I don't think you can do it, or maybe you can do it in person, but uh, I don't think you can be here, and my son's over there lying about to die, whatever distance away, and how are you going to heal if you're not there? It's like calling the doctor and saying, well, would you, would you uh, fix my problem? And the doctor says, well, you don't need to come to the hospital, uh, I'll send you a pill. You'll be all right. You don't really believe him, do you? Well, how much do we believe? We need to truly believe. We need conviction. And I will tell you, we have not been close enough to God. We've been Laodicean and half-hearted. And we have not believed to the healing and the saving of our bodies and eternally. We have work to do. Do we need signs and wonders? Now, the world may. Do we need them? Well, maybe we'll have to have some. He does say in the same time there will be some. But we who understand shouldn't need that. We should already believe. He even said in one place, an evil adulterous uh, generation seeks signs. So we just need to believe that what he says is true. He created us. He put us here. He tells us he seeks believers. And if we will obey him, we will be healed and we will be saved. So we got to come to truly believe it. Faith is the second most important thing there is after love. Faith, hope, and love are not very far apart. They're all closely joined together. But love is, above all, the most important. So he spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he began to mend. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Now, he must have been quite a distance from home because he had traveled the rest of the day after Christ had told him to go on home. And whether he stayed over that night or kept traveling, who knows. But he said from the seventh hour, uh, seven o'clock in the morning yesterday, uh, the fever left. So Christ must have spoken to him at that time, seven o'clock in the morning. And the next day, they told him, well, it was 7 o'clock yesterday. So it proved that Christ was involved. Not It wasn't just happenstance. His fever didn't just break of itself. 
that it had to do with Christ. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Emmanuel said to him, your son lives, and himself believed in his whole house. You know, that's a, that's a natural question to ask. When did this occur? Because, you know, sometimes you do get well without God. There are people who get sick in this world all around us, and sometimes they get well. They get over it, whatever it was. Sometimes they go to doctors and they don't get over it and die, and sometimes they go to doctors and get over it and live. Sometimes they don't go to anybody and they just get over it. A cold, a flu, something more serious even. But it is, I've always noted, I know myself even, that when someone was anointed and what the circumstances were, and can you see clearly that God was involved, or was it something that just sort of happened and God really wasn't there? Because if it happened a day or two or three later, he might question, well, maybe I just got over it. So this man, did my son just get over it? No, it happened right at the time that Christ told you he lives. Sometimes we have to reason and use logic and understand. And in examining the way something happens, sometimes it helps us believe, as it did this man. So he knew uh, at, the time, at that time, he says, your son lives and himself believed and his whole house. So he told them the circumstances, and then they said, oh, yeah, well, it, it happened at the time that he told you that, so uh, we believe him now. This is, again, the second miracle that Emmanuel did when he was come out of Judah to Galilee. I think it's interesting that it says clearly that it was the second one. The, uh, the turning of water into wine, representing his blood and truth, and then healing someone physically. And healing is both spiritual and physical. And then next time we'll get into... Uh, the loaves and how his physical body is there as well. So let's not get into that today since it's a little after two and my voice is getting tired and beginning to get raspy, so I'll just stop there for today.